This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Thomas Oden has lived one of the most interesting lives of the 20th century and into the 21st. He is now the general editor of the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture and the Ancient Christian Doctrine series. He's also the director of the Center for Early African Christianity at Eastern University in Pennsylvania. For many years, he was professor of theology at the Graduate School of Drew University. His most recent book, A Change of Heart, a personal and theological memoir, is one of the most moving Christian autobiographies I have ever read. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Thomas C. Oden. Dr. Oden, when you wrote your book, A Change of Heart, a personal and theological memoir, you told a story that uh, only you could tell. And and that's not just in terms of the fact that the particulars of your life are are unique to yourself, but rather the theological trajectory you trace is is one that uh, was only possible in the 20th century. How did did you come to, uh, to decide this was the way to tell your story? I, I didn't want to tell my story. I was asked by quite a few people to open a window into all of this. I really didn't want to. I didn't think I could write narrative. I just wasn't prepared to do it. But uh, now that I've worked through it and done it, I'm very pleased to have uh, have it out there. Um, how did uh, I decide to, uh, or how do I understand the, uh, my story in relationship to God's story with us is the way I would put the issue. Uh, I'd, honestly, Al, I think personal autobiography is rather unimportant in relation to the story of God with humanity, and especially his revelation in Jesus Christ. So uh, I, I don't have any pretenses about, uh, you know, my story being important. It's just exactly what happened to me. I, I felt that I had, when I finally committed myself to doing this, I had to tell it exactly like it was. So that's uh, that was the challenge for me. Uh, there's a sense in which I guess, uh, the, you know, I've lived through the uh, last 80 years, well, 80 plus years, and so to tell the story is a little bit complicated. You know, people ask me, how, how did you do all of this in one lifetime? And uh, by the way, sometimes I wonder about you, Al, how did you do all that you've done in your lifetime? It's, it's been amazing. But it really is taking step by step. It's just a matter of, um, uh, of responding to grace. And, and I guess the heart of my story is uh, that about the first 40 years of my life, I was way, way out there on a path that uh, um, I had to go go on in order to come back like the prodigal son uh, to the father. But eventually I did, and by my 40th year, um, I, uh, I became deeply invested in listening carefully to the classical Christian consensus. Yes. Uh, to the ancient Christian writers and their uh, their interpretation of Scripture, and of course, you know, out of that came the ancient Christian commentary, and and uh, so it's been a, a wonderful journey for me, and uh, I'm still on it. I'm still very much involved. You probably know that I'm 
very much involved Absolutely. in the rebirth of African orthodoxy. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you are a library unto yourself, just in terms of your books, and that's a part of the story. But as well as I thought I knew you and your story, Dr. Oden, I, I think the thing that surprised me the most in this memoir uh, was uh, where you get, even in page 46, to where you're speaking of the, the first, say, half of your life, and you're talking about your college experience, and uh, and and you say uh, that soon after, basically, you, uh, you you graduate from college, you started a period of left turns, and as as you say, as early in your book as page forty six, uh, every turn a left turn. Can you explain how that happened to a young man who was raised in uh, a traditional Protestant home in a wonderful family context of a loving family? How did you end up turning left? Uh, by reflex so early in life? Well, I think the honest answer here is that I loved the fantasies, and I loved the revolutionary illusions. I truly loved them. I loved heresy, Al. And uh, why did I love heresy? After I had been, you know, nurtured in uh, faith in the incarnate Lord and the risen Lord, it was, I don't want to put it on, I don't want to Put it onto the, uh, the, the the times. It's it's not it's not the times that shaped me. But um, I do think that I was uh, fr- I was from the day I set foot in in the university, which was 1949. That's the University of Oklahoma. Uh, I was interested in uh, exploring things that I didn't know, and so I got quickly, very deeply into Marx. And I had friends that were very much involved in what you would call uh, socialist uh, ideology, and I became very much involved in that, and uh, d- deeply was committed to it. You know, I, and, and I was uh, very much involved uh, early on uh, in the civil rights movement, and uh, I became very much involved in the, in the existential uh, movement uh, when I was in seminary. Uh, I think you know that I went to seminary not to serve the ministry of the church, but to use the church as an instrument of political change. Now, when I did that, when I was doing that, I didn't understand what I was doing, but it took me a while to learn that there was something much deeper than um, uh, political action uh, to which I was deeply committed in in my young years. When you write your story about all these left turns, uh, one of those turns takes you beyond your college and seminary experience to Yale University, where you did doctoral work, and and you eventually settled on a dissertation uh, having to do with Rudolf Bultmann. So as you think about the theological trajectories of the 20th century, in one sense, your very doctoral dissertation placed you amongst the the hyper-modernists there at the very beginning of the 20th century. Yes, I was... I was, I would call it a moderate Boltmannian. I wasn't on the left wing of the Boltmannian school, uh, as my colleague uh, Schubert Ogden, I believe, was. But um, I, uh, I learned a lot from Boltmann. And what I, after, after having been, after having cast away the New Testament as uh, being pretty much uh, irrelevant to what I was trying to do at that time, which was political action, uh, Boltmann really did bring me back into taking the text seriously. Of course, he didn't take me far enough into the text to rec- recognize that um, uh, the uh, the resurrection was the basis for 
for the church's memory of what happened uh, in, in Jesus of Nazareth. The resurrection turned everything upside down, and I don't think Bultmann ever, and nor did Tillich, uh, ever really confessed the resurrection in the way that I came to uh, confess it as an, an event in history, and that came to me uh, on the basis of really historical reasoning about the evidences of the resurrection. Well, when you write about that in your book, I want to read back a few of your own words to you, because uh, there's enormous uh, revelation in these. You you write of that era in your life, I was able to confess the Apostles' Creed, but only with deep ambiguity. But I stumbled over, he arose from the dead. I had to demythologize it and could say it only symbolically. I could not inwardly confess the resurrection as a factual historical event. I was assigned the task of teaching theology. But when I came to the resurrection, I honestly had to say at that stage that it was not about an actual event of a bodily resurrection, but a community's memory of an unexplained event. That's an incredible set of sentences there, Dr. Oden. Well, it's absolutely true, and it came out of my theological mentors. Al, I mean, I was simply, uh, I was simply reflecting uh, the ethos of the time uh, when uh, existentialist theology, especially Bultmann and Tillich, were the fad. They were the main point of reference for anybody in ministry in the United Methodist Church at that time. And so, um, and I think even the leftward turns that I took early in my life were uh, an evidence of me trying to be faithful to my church, its leadership, its leadership, especially its national youth leadership, and uh, the student Christian movement, or the uh, United the, the Methodist student movement at that time, uh, you may remember the magazine Motive. Do you have you ever seen that magazine? I have. Well, that if, uh, that was my history. I mean, the, I, that 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 magazine uh, in, in its it had a uh, it had a a very important impact upon me as it did upon uh, Hillary Clinton, Hillary Rodham at that time. And uh, uh, I think that uh, it took me a long time to find my way back uh, to a recognition uh, that uh, the, the beginning of Christian confession is the incarnation and the resurrection. God's coming in the flesh, and God's truly rising uh, to uh, forgive our sins and take our place. In your book, uh, very early on, speaking of your role as a theology professor in a theological seminary, you describe a pattern that in the midst of the controversy years ago in my own denomination was uh, spoken of as doublespeak, kind of in a Norwellian sense, where there was actually one veteran professor who said that uh, what he had been taught by other professors in the seminary was to speak one way to the academy and another way to the church. And uh, in your memoir, you write, In my seminary teaching, I appeared to be relatively orthodox, if by that one means using an orthodox vocabulary. I could still speak of God, sin, and salvation, but always only in demythologized, secularized, and worldly-wise terms. God became the liberator, sin became oppression, and salvation became human effort. Then this final sentence, The trick was to learn to sound Christian while undermining traditional Christianity. Just how widespread was that pattern, or, or is it, Dr. Oden? Unfortunately, Al, I think it was extremely widespread, not nearly so much in the Southern Baptist Convention, but it certainly was among Methodist circles, and I would say especially Methodist intellectual circles and Methodist uh, theological circles. 
um, uh, I I think that the uh, the confession of the resurrection as an event in history, or the incarnation as an event in history of God becoming flesh, I don't think that I learned that in seminary. I had to unlearn it. I had to go through a long process of searching out, uh, uh, you know, my myself. Uh, and the options that were available to me until they became, in the late 60s, really, uh, just sort of uh, bare and, and uh, unpromising for me. And, and that's the point at which I met Will Herbert. You, in one sense, kind of invent a vocabulary for us in telling your story. And uh, one of the terms that I have borrowed from you uh, and, and cited you on repeatedly is where you refer to those days in your life as, uh, in your self-description, being a movement theologian. I, I, I think as I look at the, uh, at, at the history of theology in the 20th century in particular, certainly continuing into our own times, there are many who are rightly described as movement theologians. C- can you tell us what you meant by that and, and how you found yourself a, a movement theologian? Well, the, the key phrase here is that the, the, the world sets the agenda. That was a book that was written by a Yale professor in, uh, I would say, the late, late 50s or early 60s. And uh, if, if the world is setting the agenda for the Church, the Church is always trying to catch up philosophically with what is happening in uh, existentialism and, and, and scientific inquiry. Uh, in terms of the psychotherapy, it's always trying to catch up with whatever is the latest um, and seemingly, apparently, the best and most productive form of psychotherapy, and all of this. So I, it, it, we, we could simply call it fadism. Uh, I, was, I was taught to be very attentive to culture uh, without having a sufficient grounding in the classical Christian confession. And uh, I don't think that was all that unusual in, in uh, my church at that time, and unfortunately it is not all that unusual uh, today. I have remained in my church. I haven't seen any reason why I should leave my church because of its basic sound doctrine, which is basically um, uh, basically Anglican doctrine, Anglican evangelical doctrine. Uh, but uh, I uh, it, it took me many 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 paths that were that were blocked paths finally, and I had and and. That, that really is the heart of the first, roughly the first half of, of my story. Well, in that first half of your story, there is one little vignette that I have to ask you to revisit uh, as a Southern Baptist, and that was in the 1960s when describing yourself, you said you felt like a goldfish in a swarm of piranhas when you <laughs> appeared uh, as a, a self-described ecumenical liberal to speak in the 1960s on the campus of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. Uh, tell us that story. That, that, that I, I found uh, a real uh, delight in, in reading of that story. Uh, of course, that was at the height of my, uh, uh, actually, fascination with Bonhoeffer. And I was asked to, to uh, be a part of a chapel service. So I preached what I thought was a, a sermon, but it really was uh, more like a political rally for um, uh, the, uh, at least, fragments of what Bonhoeffer was saying about religionless Christianity. That, if you can sort of think of that as the context in which we are having a meeting of ecumenical students. These students come all, from all over uh, Texas, Oklahoma, and, uh, um, uh, and nearby. This was a southwestern uh, conference, and 
so I went through uh, my talk, and then uh, the president uh, of, uh, of Southwestern Baptist, a, a wonderful, gentle human being. Do you remember his name? I'm Rob- sorry. Dr. Robert Naylor. Robert Naylor, what a wonderful man he is, and how how gracious he was to me. And just after after I sat down, he came to the podium, and uh, he very uh, um, deftly uh, took almost every point that I had made and just tore it apart. It was not tore it apart is too harsh because he was never a harsh man; he was a gentle man. Uh, but I real <laughs> I realized. After that, that uh, it took me a while, to, uh, several years, I guess, to realize how uh, how how much he had actually understood what I said and uh, and um, and rebuked it, and, and he gave me what I would call gentle admonition, which I think is a great virtue of the pastoral tradition. He was a very gracious man. Dr. Odin, I just have to tell you that when I was elected president at Southern uh, Seminary in 1993, I was, I was just 33, I needed uh, to, to talk to some people who had run seminaries before that I respected. I flew out to Fort Worth to meet with Robert Naylor, who uh, was so gracious to receive me. And I think you intersect with that story in ways I didn't know till I read your book. Because when he was giving me practical advice about being a seminary president, he said, look, young man, he said, one of the worst things you can possibly do is leave a chapel service early. He said, you be there, so if necessary, you can have the last word. And it just may be that you were the reason why he told me that. Well, it could be. Uh, you came along a few years after me. Um, yes. uh, you're, good, you're a good bit younger than I, but I think you must have been the dean there for something like 30 years, is it? Something... Uh, I, I've been here at Southern uh, since 1993. And uh, when, okay. when you and I, as president, and when you and I first met... I was a doctoral student here, and uh, I was an administrator serving on the staff here, and then I was editor of the Christian Index. We spent, uh, uh-huh. we, we spent a delightful conversation in Chicago, I think, uh, back when I was editor of the Index. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I just think of, of your life story. You shared so generously here. And, uh, you know, I come in in terms of my life, born in 1959, 10 years after you graduated from, from college or, or went to college, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just looking and saying, I wish I had read your book when I was 22, uh, you know, because it would have helped me so much. And that's one of the reasons why I'm glad to share it with so many now, because I landed in the midst of the people who were taught by the people who taught you. And uh, I was taught the same kind of thing in terms of movement theology. And uh, yet in a Southern Baptist context, there was a sense in which uh, the, the, the leftward direction of the Southern Baptist Convention was desperate to catch up with where the United Methodists already were. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, let, let me just say this, uh, Al. I think that what you participated in, you and Pressler and Paige uh, Patterson, uh, you all participated in a very important corrective, what is sometimes called the conservative resurgence. Uh, and I have... Ben, I have had a very similar role among the United Methodists uh, in the United Methodist Church. I probably have been more more isolated and more um, uh, less geared uh, to uh, to the uh, you know the uh, political life, you might say, of the United Methodist Church. I've had a lot of that, and I'm. I'm very glad to be sort of uh, beyond all of that, although I still remain a United Methodist. 
conversation with Thomas Oden thus far points to the fact that not only was he what he describes as a movement theologian, not, not only was he someone who had taken a left turn at every available opportunity, but it happened very early in his life. It's important for us to recognize, I think, that it was tied to his experience in higher education, even in the 1940s and the 1950s. But it was really central to the academic project of mainline Protestantism by the time you reach the late 50s and the 1960s, well into the 1970s. But it's in the 1970s that Thomas Oden's life and his thinking took a decisive turn. That's what makes his story so unique. When you read the book, you find out that he has been virtually everywhere and with everyone. At so many of the most important points in church history in the 20th century, he was there. He was there at the Second Vatican Council as an observer. He has been just about everywhere. But the most important thing he would have us to see in the memoir is how a recovery of Christian orthodoxy led him to leave all that very much behind. And it's to that great turn in his life that we now turn. Let me ask you uh, about the most important part of your story, which isn't where you were, but how you arrived at your current convictions. And and you talk about uh, the, 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 the turn in your life, and you actually trace it, oddly enough, in, in a way that I just have to, to attribute to the providence of God, to the relationship that you had with Will Herberg, Drew, one of the most yeah. seminal Jewish thinkers of the 20th century in America. Uh, He really was important to me, because when I first met Will, um, that was when I first arrived at Drew in 1970, uh, he was the leading uh, professor uh, in the graduate school at that time. His his graduate school classes were packed, and I wanted to really get acquainted with him, so we sat up... uh, uh, a, about a meeting, once a, a luncheon meeting with my wife and, and uh, Will about every two or three weeks. And so we got very well acquainted quite early, and Will saw right through me. I mean, he, of course, at that time he was writing um, uh, um, articles uh, for, um, uh, for Bill Buckley and, right. and for conservative um, uh, magazines at that time. He was uh, he was not so much a political neocon, but a philosopher on behalf of uh, neoconservatism. And, you know, i got to say, I don't think, before I met Will, I don't think I ever met any anybody that I would call a, a conservative intellectual. I just didn't meet anybody like that. I was protected from meeting by uh, by the associations and networks I was in. And anyway, he was a, a, a very gruff and and um, uh, a direct person in communication. And so um, we were we were having a, a luncheon at Convent Station nearby Drew, where I was teaching. And uh, he got right in my face. He put his finger up, looked straight into my eyes, and with fury in his eyes, he says, "You will never be a theologian until you." dig deep into the classical Christian tradition. And, and I, I, I later I learned that he had done that very same thing because he had been a member of the Communist Party. And after the Hitler-Stalin pact in 1939, he had left the Communist Party and then become a conservative Jew. So his path uh, was probably 30 years before uh, mine, uh, but I really did... Uh, 
I took him seriously. I, I knew that he was right. Well, the and, line, the, the line, Dr. Odin, that he addressed to you is a line that I have now um, uh, addressed to others. It's, it's sheer concision and brilliance gets right to the point. When, as you say in your memoir, he said to you, you don't know your own tradition well enough to repudiate it. He was exactly right. I I had very little idea about uh, classical Christian teaching. I knew a lot of a lot about contemporary theology. That's what I I kind of specialized in at Yale. I can I, I, I worked with Bart and Bultmann mostly, um, and uh, in the existentialist. And uh, I I had uh, so so what happened to me was a very simple thing. I decided to take his advice. I, I didn't have an, uh, an alternative in, in my conscience. And so I began reading the ancient Christian writers, first of all, the pre-Nicene writers, and then uh, the, uh, the, the, the formulators of, uh, of orthodoxy and, and of, the, uh, of, of the concilium of the councils, the ecumenical councils of the first early centuries. And uh, I, I just was intrigued. I, there was a whole world there that I hadn't known about. And it was a wonderful world. And it became my home. It was like coming home. And uh, it, by, the, by the end of my second year there at, at Yale, uh, at Drew, um, uh, my colleagues were kind of wondering what had happened to me, you know. And, and I don't think they ever quite understood what had happened to me, but... Uh, it, it was that I, I became a participant in the great cloud of witnesses. I, I, they, were, they were there, but I didn't listen to them. I didn't hear them. And so uh, the, it was really uh, a, a props, process of reading. Uh, I, and that sounds very boring to someone who is in the pietistic tradition, you know, uh, but it was it, I met the Lord, and I met God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit through reading the ancient Christian writers. Simple as that. And that, that book is still open for anybody that wants to go there. Well, and you have, in your latter years, uh, helped so many people to get there by your ancient Christian commentary and so many other uh, very important works of research. But before I get there, I... I, wa- I want to go back to where you began reading the early church fathers, and uh, uh, other than Augustine and uh, Athanasius, whom I quote probably more than the other of the fathers, uh, I quote Vincent. And I-, I, was, I was so interested once again to see how Vincent of Lorenz had been so crucial to your, your theological self-understanding. I-, I-, I would appreciate if you'd talk about that just a bit, because I will tell you as a doctoral student— I found uh, much the same influence from the very same source. I think Vincent of Lorraine is a, a remarkable man because he understood in a clear way that nobody else had done up to that point, he understood how consensus was achieved on doctrinal matters in the ecumenical councils. I believe personally that he was, in fact, attending the Council of Ephesus, but that's a speculation. Uh, but I think there's some good indicators there. And in any event, he had his, he understood how the council fathers um, arrived at decision making, and uh, it was a matter of allowing the apostolic witness to become consensual through prayer, through scripture study, 
and through conversation. And uh, his formula, of course, as you know, is uh, the, that if, if, a, if a dogmatic statement is not found everywhere in, in the whole range of the universal church, uh, it cannot be ecumenical if it if it um, uh, uh, if it is not uh, personally received. It cannot it cannot be uh, ecumenical, um, and uh, it must have a a, 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 a continuous uh, tradition of being remembered as uh, received. But received what received memory of the apostolic tradition. In other words, these. Ancient Christian writers were not just speculating out of nowhere; they were they were deep. They they had memorized so much of the Scripture. It's amazing, uh, and and they they learned um, uh, they they studied deeply the Scripture. That's a point that often Protestants don't quite uh, credit uh, uh, sufficiently. Uh, I mean, yes. someone like Origen or Augustine was deeply immersed in Scripture and. Um, Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. So uh, I, I think Vincent helped me when I, I think I read Vincent before I read the, um, the, the 14th um, volume of the Nicene, post-Nicene Fathers. And that was the, that was this, the, the book that was on uh, simply a report, documents, one document after another, of the decisions of the councils. And that really changed my life. I mean, I realized how uh, the Church thought, how the Church arrived at its dogmatic decisions, and then uh, what happened to me, Al, is that I began gradually to trust the Holy Spirit. This is not something that happened without the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit guiding the Church toward um, uh, the unity of the body of Christ and guiding the Church toward the consensual memories yes. of the of, of the apostles. I truly believe that, despite a lot of um, New Testament um, uh, a different uh, 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 differences among New Testament scholars, I think the apostles were essentially one in voice, as we see, for example, at the Council of Jerusalem. They were one. They were. They were. There were not different Christianities, as Bart Ehrman says. There were. Yes. There was one Christianity from the very beginning, and then it had to face. And uh, it had to fend off all kinds of Gnostic and and uh, Arian and uh, other kinds of heresies. So, yes, you once know, I got through that period uh, 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 of recognizing ecumenical consensus, is what I would put it. It just was a breeze. I, it, it made the theology so much easier for me because. Well, you know, my, the dream that I report of, of having um, a, a dream about my tombstone, which uh, delightfully said, he made no new contribution to theology. Yes. Now, I took that dream as a as kind of a wonderful, ironic uh, discovery about myself, because I discovered that I didn't have to create a new theology, which I had been taught all my theological life that that's what my life would be about creating a new theology. <laughs> I, I, it's almost amusing to l listen, you know, to think about it now, but that's what happened to me. I, I want to press you just a bit on that, because uh, th where, where Vincent uh, came into my, my thinking was as a, a, a Ph.D. student in historical and systematic theology, the historical part in particular, where 
my great discovery in that process, and uh, I, I had many people who helped me. One of them was our common friend Timothy George, who was on my doctoral oh, yeah. committee at the beginning. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I began to understand that there were two trajectories uh, from the very earliest post-apostolic era. There was a trajectory of orthodoxy and a trajectory of heresy. And you could basically trace these trajectories. And so, uh, you know, in my in my own way, by reading, as you say, I, I refought the uh, the battle of of, uh, of Nicaea right right down to the creed. I I, I went through every major theological con- controversy, Augustine versus Pelagius, and and then right through the Reformation in the present. And and it was it was it became very easy. You, you talked about how easy it became once you once you understood the the the, the basic trajectory of orthodoxy. And uh, I, I think there are many evangelicals who are actually tremendously vulnerable uh, simply because they don't know that these two streams are both very old. And you mentioned Bart Ehrman. They think this is something new. It's, it's not new at all. Her- her- heresy is, is, is never new. That's right. It's been there. Even, even uh, elements of it or echoes of it in the, in the New Testament itself. But when it got transferred to Alexandria, which was a great... Uh, Mouse, a great uh, university system and a great uh, context for all kinds of experimental uh, thinking, it, it really had to confront the Gnostics, uh, the, the, the serious Gnostics. And uh, there certainly was a stream that claimed uh, to, to be truly apostolic. It's interesting to me that the heresies always appealed to, uh, to the apostles. Uh, but they had different memories and different texts. And um, so finally the question of canonization became a decisive one, because uh, if you're going to have a, um, uh, uh, an ecumenical and world, a world church with one confessing one Lord, uh, you've got to have an agreement on what belongs in the canon of scriptures that is read in the church every Sunday. You invent, I think, a term to refer to your own understanding of... Uh of this theological trajectory, you refer to a phrase you say is not only ironic, but perhaps even a bit comic. Uh, that's the phrase paleo-orthodoxy. How did you come to that? I first, um, when I first introduced that term to my graduate students, I, I was partly thinking in jest because at that time, neo-orthodoxy was the uh, was the prevailing view. By neo-orthodoxy, I mean primarily. Uh, at least in my context, it was uh, Bultmann and Tillich, and less so Bart, but Bruner, and uh, that was neo-orthodoxy. Well, it seemed to me, <laughs> if I had to clarify myself to my graduates, I, I had to show why, why I was not neo-orthodox. I mean, neo-orthodoxy never had a, an adequate doctrine of the Church. It never had a fully adequate doctrine of the Atonement. These things were so essential in the classical Christian writers, and so I had to show that I was uh, not following the patterns, uh, even of Bart, who, uh, who so, was so deeply, um, so deeply uh, Reformed and Calvinist, uh, that he, he resisted going back to, in some measure, he certainly knew Athanasius, but he, he did not go, I don't think Bart ever went really deeply into the ancient Christian writers. Anyway, paleo was the word that obviously is the opposite of neo. Um, but if you add to that uh, the phrase postmodern paleo-orthodoxy, which I think is the most descriptive 
four words for what I what I do. Um, you see this ancient orthodoxy, the old faith, uh, being renewed in culture after culture, in language after language, and it is it is perfectly open to being renewed today. And uh, so uh, I, I also uh, found that modernity, and this I don't know whether, I think you had, uh, you used the phrase postmodern in one of your books, I believe, yes. as, a, as a subtitle. Was it the book on preaching? It was. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciated that, but I think what, what I had to fight off, well, were people uh, that just couldn't believe that I was, uh, I was, uh, I was really focused on cr- a critique of modernity, and I honestly believe that the um, the key figures in modern consciousness, and, I'm, and you know what they are, in my view, they are Freud, Marx, Nietzsche, and Darwin. These are the key figures that everything else in modernity comes out of. So if those key figures are basically off base, then the whole trajectory is off base. And I had followed all four of those figures very deeply, yes. and I had, to, I had to find myself beyond them. Um, but when I speak of modernity, I mean something that is, I think is not completely dead, but in, in morose in its intellectual Foundation, and I think we see this, for example, in Darwinism and the and the um, uh, intelligent design premise that I think is becoming more and more plausible for more and more serious scientists. Doctor Odin, when you had this change in your own trajectory, you were still in the same institution. Uh, the right. graduate school there at Drew had hired you as a movement theologian, and uh, you jumped out of the movement into classical Christian orthodoxy. How did, how did that go over, and, 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 and what were the lessons you learned about contemporary theological education from uh, your experience? <laughs> oh, I think my colleagues were very generous to me, and, and, and I was tenured from the day I was there, but uh, they, were, they put up with me, and we had, we had good friendships, but we were on very different, we had very different ways uh, of understanding the situation we were in. If you think back to the, I went to Drew in the 70s. If you think back to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, those were the years where um, everything uh, 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 was was trying to accommodate to modernity. Whatever it was, uh, theology was uh, trying to get, not to get ahead of modernity, but just trying to sort of catch up with it. And uh, what happened to my colleagues? Well, they went on their way. And they went on the way of political correctness, and they went on the way of what I regard as a kind of exaggerated understanding of absolute egalitarianism uh, that is not, uh, does not seek equal justice at all, but seeks, um, uh, seeks privilege for privileged, um, uh, privileged voices. And uh, I, for example, did support affirmative action, but I didn't support... I affirmed affirmative action in its, in its legal sense and court sense, but I didn't affirm it in the way in which it was interpreted in my seminary, um, in which uh, language uh, became, uh, you know, proper language about God became a very, very crucial question. I don't think that ever happened, at least not very much in the Baptist seminaries, but it certainly did in the Methodist seminaries, and it, it was just a 
the real question here, of course, is do you call Jesus the Son of God? And is God the Father? Now, when at that point, um, uh, I had to uh, I had to take a firm stand, and I did. And um, I think uh, my colleagues, uh, um, like I said, they I, we got along okay in a social sense, but I don't think they ever really understood what I was doing. I'd like to ask you, Dr. Odin, about just a couple of issues that arise in your book, because there, there were clearly some catalysts that, uh, that, that helped to crystallize some of these issues for you. Uh, one of them was the issue of abortion. Oh, yeah. Well, this, this, was, uh, this was connected with the time of the 1973 decision on um, Roe versus Wade. I believe it was 73. It was. That's right. Um, and uh, I had been teaching previously, for the previous 10 years before going to Drew, I had been actually uh, active politically for a liberal abortion policy. Uh, and uh, I was the ch- county chairman for Fred, uh, uh, for Fred Harris's uh, Senate campaign. And, you know, I was taking the line of the Democratic Party at that time, and uh, anyway, I I was te- here's what happened, uh, Al. I was teaching young seminarians that um, they didn't they what they needed to do in their pastoral care of women who were seeking abortion was just empathize with them and not express any judgment about the value of life. Now I at I, at, a, at a certain point I came to a simple ethical revulsion. The revulsion was against the, 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 uh, the pro-abortion premise that, that life can be taken uh, arbitrarily and on the basis of convenience. And I, uh, if you, uh, I think that was a, a moment in my consciousness. And once I passed through that moment, I've never changed. I've been very pro-life since then, and uh, all the work that I did at a certain time on treatment termination, uh, you know, shows that. And um, uh, I just think, uh, to put it quite simply, the value of life cannot be compared with any other finite value, because life is the precondition of thinking about value. You follow me here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, once I got through that, and uh, I, I, I feel like my political life changed considerably because uh, from then on, Al, I was involved, I, I was, uh, uh, my political life changed to a politics of repentance. In other words, I had spent a, a couple of decades doing things politically that I later came to regret. I came to regret the idealization of um, uh, of uh, certainly not not just socialism, but the the uh, uh, the idealization of uh, a, a regulatory society that where the planners control everything and they don't have a critique of their own planning process. That to me is just another example of original sin. Yes, sir. Uh, but. I think uh, the, the, one of the one of the deepest, strongest political uh, political 
um, uh, aspects of wisdom in the classical Christian teaching is the uh, the persistence of sin, uh, the fact that we are given given life uh, in its fullness by God, but we always find some way of fouling it up. Well, amen. That that is certainly true, and uh, that that is what makes the gospel such good news. Uh, I want to ask you, Doctor Odin, as someone who has spent your entire life in the Methodist Church, and uh, I I I just want to ask you, how, how do you see the mainline now? At, at these mainline, more liberal denominations, where do you think they are headed now in the early decades of the twenty first century? Okay, simple enough. I think the mainline is now the sideline. The old ecumenical movement from Geneva is now defunct. It can't raise any money. It doesn't have any church support. It's also true of the liberal United Methodist Church. The, the, the conferences and the jurisdictions that are the most liberal are the ones that are having the most trouble. And uh, so I think uh, I feel very hopeful about the United Methodist Church on one, uh, on one simple point. Uh, um, doesn't ignore all of the other deficits, but um, the uh, on the question on the question of uh, one man and one woman um, committing themselves in covenant fidelity for life and being responsible for their children. Uh, to me, that is just so foundational um, that uh, I, I think the Methodist discipline has remained the same on that. Point. Um, the the Methodist phrase in the Methodist discipline the phrase is that's um, right. Um, uh, homosexuality is contrary to the will of God, and uh, are inconsistent with uh, class with with Christian teaching. Uh, now, uh, I I think that the Methodist Church has held fast on that point where it has folded in the Presbyterian Church in the. In the Lutheran Church, uh, it is far more cloudy, and for that, I and I think that uh, there's another aspect here, Al. I don't know whether we've got time to go into it, but uh, the the voices of African bishops and African laity here have been decisive in Methodist polity in the last yes. twelve years or so, the last three general conferences, because uh, the voices of Africans have been so clear on this on point all points of uh, sexual ethics. And they, they've just made it clear that if the Methodist Church goes in the direction of the of the uh, of the Episcopalians, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the Methodist Church is just in huge trouble in Africa. So that has not happened. <laughs> and I think that uh, the, some of the people that I've been deeply connected with, the Confessing Movement and the Institute for Religion and Democracy and the Good News Movement. Uh, these uh, these are uh, these people have fought long and hard within uh, the Methodist um, political system, I would say, to prevent that from happening. Um, and uh, I, I regard it as a kind of a badge of honor that we have not fallen, uh, and I don't think we're going to fall. Yes, I think and we've I, got I, a basic decision yeah. before us in the in the next general conference as to where we're, whether we're going to be a world church or a North American church. But that really is the, the, the wonderful irony of all this, because it was uh, the decision to include in the United Methodist Church uh, the churches from elsewhere in the world 
that 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 at least in terms of numbers is what has kept the church from joining the uh, the headlong rush to redefine marriage and sexual standards uh, as found in scripture so the, the, there's an incredible irony there we 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 see a church in some ways rescued by africa uh here in north america absolutely true let me ask you another question dr odin uh, and, and I, I i i just cannot recommend your memoir uh it enough uh, to people i i I have found it to be one of the most delightfully written and uh, and humbly told stories. And and a couple of sentences just stick with me out of the book uh, in terms of of the humility with which you write this. And I, I want to read a couple of words back to you. Writing of the 1970s, when you were experiencing this great turn towards Christian orthodoxy, looking back at what you had written, you wrote, The 12 books I wrote in the 1960s were not all wrong, but flawed by the fervent desire to accommodate to modern worldviews. You wrote, by 1970, I could see the tremendous harm caused by some of the follies I promoted. I do not repudiate them overall, but now see the shortcomings of their hidden assumptions that were common to that time. It's incredible that the Lord has allowed you to live long enough to look back that far and write that sentence. Well, it's absolutely true. Um, I um, I was one of those who was probably way out on the far left edge of accommodating to modernity. And I don't know how the Holy Spirit found me, I guess through, uh, oddly enough, my Jewish colleague, which is uh, one of the ironies uh, of, of my history, that I became a Christian through the testimony of a Jew to the Jewish tradition and to his depth knowledge of rabbinic and midrashic writings that I followed his path that led me to the writings that changed my life. I did have a change of heart. Well, a change of heart, a change of mind, and uh, yet what I think is, I'll just say to you, Dr. Oden, from uh, having uh, blessed opportunities to be with you and to get to know you, for which I'm just tremendously thankful. Just the intersection points of our life, uh, I, I can think of being different places, and was so glad to have you here and uh, and in my library just to just to, to know that fellowship. But there's a graciousness about you, a joy that, uh, of course, I've only known you in the second half of this story. But the joy is just tangible as as you are now in your ninth decade of life, have, having written this story and shared it with uh, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. What is your great joy in this season of your life? It's really the joy of uh, uh, reflecting on the providence of God. Uh, my story, um, uh, I, I put it this way, I don't think I could have had a credible critique of modernity. I, I couldn't have had a cr- credible critique of Marxism and, and Freudianism and, 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 uh, and Nietzsche and Darwin. I couldn't have had that without going through it. The providence of God allowed me to be a prodigal, if you will, and by that I, I learned to rejoice, just as did the prodigal, in coming home to the Father. That is so kindly and graciously said, and uh, I just want to ask you as a final word, if you were to speak to me, as you are now, and if you were to speak to uh, a generation of uh, evangelical Christians coming behind what would be your word to us? What, what, what would you want us to hear from you uh, as we look uh, to the challenge of faithfulness in the future? Trust that the Holy Spirit is creating the unity of the body of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that is at work to bring us 
um, uh, you know, Baptists and Methodists, for example. There's a Baptist church and a Methodist church in my hometown. They were very different. But you and I represent a new time. And uh, it has been a work of the Spirit that we have come to the point of grounding ourselves anew uh, in the apostolic tradition and the earliest consensual Christian uh, uh, interpreters of it. I think that is, uh, any young person, I would say, just don't fail to at least make an attempt uh, to uh, listen to that, uh, to these voices. They are so valuable, so wise, and so profound. Dr. Oden, I'm so thankful for you, so thankful for this time together. I pray for you and uh, for your, your health and, and continued vitality. You're, you're a great gift to the church, and I want you to know, uh, I mean that, first of all, very personally. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Al, and I value what you've done uh, as a strong leader, as a, uh, an intelligent apologist. Uh, uh, you've been out there on the front in a lot of tough issues, and I value that very much. Well, I, I will say goodbye only in the sense that uh, I hope it is not long before I hear your voice again. God bless you, friend. I hope you'll come and visit me sometime in Oklahoma. I, I will seek to do that very thing. God bless you. Thank you, Al. Well, by now, you know what I said in the beginning is true. This is one of the most amazing stories in terms of recent church history. This is one of the most amazingly well-written and humble memoirs that you can find anywhere. And I certainly hope you find this book and you read it. And having read it, you commend it and give it to others. This is an important story. As I said in my conversation with Dr. Odin, I wish I had had this book when I was 22 years old because I wish I could have learned some of the lessons I had to learn later in my life by learning those lessons by reading Thomas Oden's autobiography, his memoir of his turn from what he describes as a movement theologian taking every option by turning to the left to someone who came to embrace and to embrace with great joy and with great depth the classical Christian tradition of orthodoxy. The conversation with Thomas Oden reveals him to be such a gracious man. He is just one of the most gracious and humble persons with whom I've ever had the opportunity to have this kind of conversation. Considering the immensity of his research and scholarship, considering the years of his teaching experience and the prominence that he earned within the Theological Academy, considering the fact that he has been virtually with everyone and has been just about everywhere, he could write with a very different spirit, but instead he writes with a very gracious spirit, this very spirit you heard in that conversation, even in the tone of his voice. This is a man who understands the great turn in his life, the recovery of the Christian gospel, to be due to the intervention of the Holy Spirit in his life by drawing him to the grace that is in Christ Jesus and then drawing him into the richness of the Christian tradition. Very important to me, and the most important thing I learned early from Thomas Oden in conversation with him, even as he began writing in the 1980s in particular about this great theological turn, one of the things I came to understand was what I was learning in my own theological pilgrimage and research my own doctoral study, to be precise, I was learning about those two trajectories, the way that leads into heresy, the way that leads into classic Christian orthodoxy. Now, in one sense, that's a very old Christian story. That's a story that Athanasius could have well understood. That's a story that Augustine does tell, in one sense, in his great book, The City of God, telling about two different cities. That's a story that John Bunyan well understood as he wrote that great Christian classic, A Pilgrim's Progress. 
That's a story that someone like Gresham Machen, J. Gresham Machen, the great defender of Presbyterian orthodoxy and Christian orthodoxy in the early decades of the 20th century understood when he wrote his most important book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. I cite that book so often because, again, it had a decisive impact in my life. When he makes the point that what we're looking at with the rise of Protestant liberalism over against classical Christianity is not two versions of Christianity, but rather two different religions. That's something that comes through every page of Thomas Oden's book. That's why Thomas Oden, writing as one who is experienced, knowing what it is to be a movement theologian, an accommodationist, as he writes, someone who reflectively took every left turn where there was a turn possible, then became someone who knew the grace of God in Jesus Christ, embraced the gospel, and sought to defend in every way Christian orthodoxy. Now that raises some very significant questions. Where exactly do we find that trajectory of health in the church? Thomas Oden, as a Methodist theologian in the context of Drew University, challenged by Will Herberg. That phrase simply ought to resound in all of our ears when Will Herberg, the Jewish theologian at Drew, turned to Thomas Oden, who was identified as a Christian theologian, and said, you don't know your tradition well enough even to repudiate it. When we start to look at that, we recognize that Thomas Oden found the great resource for his theological recovery, not only in terms of the so-called great tradition of the church, but specifically in the early church fathers. And it's really interesting if you read his book and follow his argument how that came to pass. He was and is a Methodist, which he understands to be continuous with the Anglican tradition, a tradition that claims to be continuous with that great Christian tradition. And so as he read the Christian fathers, he discovered there was a depth of doctrinal consideration, a depth of intellectual thinking, a great deposit of the faith, and he drew a direct line from the New Testament to the great theological affirmations of the early church in the early church's councils and in the early church's creeds, that apostolic era that helped to define the difference between orthodoxy and heresy. The question is now, where is that trajectory to be identified? How can we make sure we are in the right line, not in a line that leads to heresy, but rather a line that leads into a biblical orthodoxy? In that sense, I'm incredibly indebted to Thomas Oden and to his research and writing, especially in these two massive publication projects that he's doing, for helping us to understand anew the richness of the apostolic tradition, and beyond that, the riches of the seminal thinkers of the patristic era. With him, I certainly want to affirm that the great doctrinal achievements, certainly on the two key doctrines of the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, those are absolutely essential. They are indeed one of the primary roots pointing towards what can only be described as biblical orthodoxy wherever it is found. Wherever biblical orthodoxy is found, wherever true Christianity is found, It will embrace the doctrine of the Trinity as it was affirmed in those ancient councils and creeds, and it will embrace the doctrine of the person and of the work of Christ as found in those early Christian creeds. We repeat them, we study them, we embrace them in those doctrines without reservation. But I would also have to point to the Reformation, and I don't want to skip over some of the periods in between. I certainly would point to Augustine as one of the seminal influences in my thinking, perhaps more influential even than I can myself recognize But I have to go to the Reformation because I believe, as an evangelical theologian, that that trajectory simply must include the great doctrinal achievements of the Reformation. And that means a further definition of the issues. 
A further embrace of Christian truth, that great Christian tradition that is truly biblical as requiring the great achievements of the Reformation in Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone for the glory of God alone. In other words, I would have to root that biblical orthodoxy in justification by faith alone. I would also have to ground it in sola scriptura. When Thomas Oden speaks of what he now calls classical Christianity, I want to stand in the very same place. I just have to define classical Christianity further than the early church fathers by also embracing, without any hesitation or reservation, the doctrinal achievements of the Reformation, also one at great cost and in the midst of great controversy. And then, on the basis of drawing a line from the New Testament and the Apostles to the achievements of the early Church Fathers on Christology and Trinity, and then moving beyond that to the Reformation, we understand that right up until the present, those two trajectories remain pretty much the same. It is a choice between true Christianity and heresy. There are all kinds of attempts to create mediating positions, positions that will somehow be able to accommodate modernity while also affirming the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But one of the most important of Thomas Oden's titles of the past is, After Modernity, What? That's a great question. In the wake of modernity, the only true Christian response is to embrace the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, the same faith that was known by the apostles as was known by those of the church fathers who stood in the faith and affirmed by the reformers in the 16th century and beyond and now affirmed by their heirs living in these very modern, perhaps even postmodern times. I truly believe that the most interesting autobiographies and memoirs are those that tell the truth about a change of mind. But this was no mere change of mind. This is also a change of heart. And what a great heart was shared with us in this conversation. I will forever stand in debt to Thomas Oden for this book and for his honesty and for his story. And now that you've heard at least this much of the story, the same is true for you. Profound thanks to my guest, Thomas Oden, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.